1: Long-term sustainable growth can no longer happen in any silo. It can't happen with brand alone, can't happen with performance alone, can't happen with just data, can't happen with just storytelling. So we are literally in this fourth era where we are trying to understand how do we operate the marketing engine, which is an engine of ands and not an engine of ors.
0: Welcome to Building Better CMOs, a podcast about how marketers can get smarter and stronger. I am Greg Stewart, the CEO of the nonprofit MMA Global. We have three goals, to change how we think about marketing, to understand the challenges that CMOs face, and to unlock the true power that marketing can have. Now, this podcast is not a place for hero worship or how great CMOs are. Instead, we're gonna talk about real leadership in marketing and what it takes to drive growth today. Today's guest is Mayer Gupta. He's the CMO of the Kraken Digital Asset Exchange and serves as a board of director member at MMA. He started his career at the digital consulting firm Sapien, which is now a part of Publicis and has worked at Kimberly Clark, Spotify, and more. Today, Mayer is going to explain what makes Kraken different than other crypto brands. It's also gonna cover the four eras of marketing and what you should really do when the shit inevitably hits the fan. I loved this interview and if you want to be a better CMO, you really want to take notes. You can find a full transcript at this interview and more at bettercmos.com. And if you like the podcast, do me a favor and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like the podcast, email me. Seriously, I'm greg at mmaglobal.com. But now let's get to my conversation with Mayur Gupta. Mayor, so glad you could join us today. I'm really, I was really looking forward to this one. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Greg. Thanks for having me over. Where did I catch you? Where Where are you in the world right now? I'm in Miami. That's where I live now with my family. That's a nice part of the world, as 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 you know, we know because we just did our uh, the MMA's big possible event down there just uh, barely a month ago. Yes, that was awesome. It was great to see you and everybody else, and I loved the event. Your CMO Kraken. That's what kind of got you on here. You're on the global board with me and sort of working. We'll get to some of the MMA stuff. How would you describe yourself? Like, what are you? You're you're a programmer, you're a CMO, you're probably there's a lot of product in your background too. So I don't know. If you were to describe yourself, how do you look at the world? Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a great way to put it,
1: Greg. I guess I can go backwards a little bit, but if I were to describe myself, I would say. I'm still a wannabe CMO because that's not part of my academic and education. So I'm learning on the job every day surrounded by some incredible people that I've been fortunate enough to hire. But I would rather call myself as an engineer turned CMO because the basis of my understanding of marketing is all based on my learnings as an engineer, you know, systems thinking, the ability to Go top down and bottom up, but just to give some context to everyone, I grew up in India. I did my major in computer science there. Literally started my career as an engineer coming out of India, and it wasn't out of passion to be very honest. It was more because back then, if you wanted a job in India, you know, computer science was the safest place to go. Doctor, lawyer, comp sci. Those are that's the three choices for Indian that, kids. That's it. And I was, um, if I had more courage back then, I would be trying to play cricket for the country, but I didn't have enough. And we were a billion of us, now we're a billion and a half. So you take the easier path. So I did that and I started my career literally as an engineer, sometimes working 24 hours, but you know, the basics of who I am today is all laid there. I worked at Sapient. And then there were two pivots, Greg, in my career. In 2006, after having worked for seven, eight years, one of my mentors asked me to become a product lead for an ad tech product we acquired in Miami. What was the name of that product? It was called Bridge Track. It was owned by a company called PGI. And in fact, until two years back, the product was still live. Back then, we were competing with uh, Atlas DoubleClick. We were competing with the Eloqua's and the Unicars of the world. I literally coded ad servers, you know, search bid management systems. And uh, that was my first pivot. I evolved from being a pure technologist, building solutions for clients like Cisco, you know, Kaiser Permanente and, and different verticals to now building products
0: for marketing and advertising. Wow, so you you have an incredibly deep understanding of the underlying infrastructure of how all this stuff works, interesting.
1: That was the genesis of my journey. And I kid you not that when I would go back to my hotel because I was traveling when we acquired the company, I would literally go to Wikipedia to understand what a pixel is, what is a target, what is an advertiser, because there was no other marketing for <laughs> dummies and I was a dummy in marketing. <laughs> and then the second pivot for me literally came in 2012 and after twelve and a half and a half years, I left Sapien to join Kimberly Clark to lead marketing, tech, digital, and e-commerce reporting into the CMO. And that totally shifted my mindset because as you know, when you're working on the other side of the fence, you're literally trained to sell complexity. You're trained to sell technology and build technology. But when I went on the other side, on the brand side, I finally realized that at the end, what matters most is your ability to change the human behavior, your ability to identify, what is that human behavior that is preventing your growth and how you use technology towards that
0: outcome. I love that. I love that. Okay, so we're going to get into all that. I had no idea that you'd actually programmed an ad server. And, you know, that's a funny business because you know who's a good friend of mine? is a guy named John Sabella. He was the original product manager for DoubleClick and he was hired at a Lehman Brothers back in, this would have been probably 98, I'm gonna guess, 98, 99, somewhere in there, just as, as sort of as .com was really starting to happen. And he was telling me he was shocked to go in there because DoubleClick at that time, and I'm gonna get a little bit of this wrong, but they were doing like 30 million transactions a month. And he was like, nobody, like he comes from financial services, he goes, nobody does that kind of scale. So I asked him a good question. I go, John, when you left three, four, five, whatever years later, how many impressions were you guys serving? What were the transaction load? He said it was great. He was thirty, fifty billion. 50 billion. Oh, yes. It's crazy to go back to the business and what it took to build. I mean, I don't think people understand how complex these systems are and what it takes, what it really takes to run this kind of scale today that advertising is pushing out through the internet. Yes, totally. And there's a lot of programming that
1: goes into every single impression. There is this concept of munging and demunging, which is, you know, all the parameters coming in and you encrypt them and you decrypt them to really track what happens behind the scenes. Obviously, this is pre-DMPs and the CDPs world. Right. This is when everything was going into the database and you're doing all kinds of tracking. I'm talking about 2005 and six, but you know, for me, that was the foundation laying for
0: my journey into the world of marketing and advertising. So Kraken is a crypto exchange for, God, the few people that don't know, and that's where you're CMO now. Where did the name Kraken come from, by the way? Because it actually means sea monster. It is. (laughs) It was actually uh,
1: coined by Jesse Powell, who's now a chairman, but he's the co-founder and CEO. And he just wanted to come up with something really cool. When we all joined, we all asked that question, and uh, he wanted to come up with something unique and different. So it wasn't really any other rationale, but we're very proud of it. I think we want to be nice sea monsters as uh, <laughs> uh, protectors and guardians of our clients and client assets. Even though you know, there's a funny story around how we came up with the name Kraken and a lot of people ask us that, but what matters to us is the soul of our brand. It is very, very, it's very unique that how much a fintech macro category, a crypto brand will care so much about its soul. Yeah. And yeah. that's
0: what Kraken really is. Well, let's talk a little bit about what's going on in crypto. As, as you know, I've told you because we've talked before that you know I got into, I bought Bitcoin first in 2013 when it was 200 dollars. I saw it; it made sense to me. What's funny is my I won't bore everybody with my original investment thesis. At the time, I thought it really made sense. I was 100% wrong, but it went up. You know, it did. It did. You know, uh, Bitcoin's continuing to do well. What's going on in crypto right now? Because you know, it feels like you know. There's this news of it's a crypto winter. I don't even know, you know what that means. Maybe we're in a thaw spring right now. But how do you look at what it is about and what yeah. Kraken's doing? It we
1: look at what's going on right now, or what was going on last year, rather, because the market's been improving and going up this year. We look at it as business as usual. You know, this isn't you know crypto winter or bear runs. This isn't the first one for Kraken. And you've been in it in the space, Greg. You've seen the ebbs and flows. We look at you know it's a long term revolution which is trying to change. The most fundamental concept in the universe which is a concept of money and you don't bring those changes at the scale of this technology like crypto by just going up so the bears and bulls are inevitable this is probably the third or the fourth in the history of kraken and our thesis during these bear runs is you know you focus on building great products you focus on optimizing your engine so that you're preparing yourself for the next run you know when the market picks up and you. Hopefully the next run brings the next billion users. But fundamentally the way I look at it is um, the next stage of growth and adoption for crypto will come when the technology underneath crypto becomes hidden and the value becomes more visible. If you look at the last couple of revolutions of this scale that we all went through, you know, something like the invent of the iPhone, you know, that totally changed our lives. You know, when you bought your first iPhone, you didn't open it up and dig into the technology because the value was so obvious. And I think that's the flip we have to make now in crypto where the use cases and the application of a great technology like blockchain and crypto become so obvious to the person walking down the street where the conversation will no longer be about what's feeding it, but rather the actual incremental value. And that's the next phase that we are all very excited about at Kraken.
0: Well, you know, listen, if you listen to guys like Warren Buffett and some others there, it's a speculators device. They say you basically, you know, their thesis, if you have listened to Warren, who is a smart guy, obviously, but I, I don't know that the old guys always get the future. So, but, you know, his point of view is that, you know, you have to buy with an expectation that somebody's going to buy it for more later, which feels a little like the stock market to me where he's made all his money, but whatever. What is the real application of crypto? Like why, where does the foundation, or is it always just a, a store of value? Yeah. First of all, when you have the non-believers, it's expected.
1: You can't expect for something of this scale to come in and eight billion people around the world, you know, suddenly start believing in it. It's never gonna happen and shouldn't happen because there should always be challengers. As a marketer, I feel some of that is a symptom of what we've done as marketing within the category. Not Kraken because we were always very humble and we always focus on building great products and the mission. But if you look at in the bull run, a lot of the marketing was format driven. A lot of the marketing was about being the loudest voice and trying to get people to make a quick money, to make a quick buck. When you bring in loads of people into a category they don't understand yet, only to get rich quick or because of FOMO, it starts to feel more like speculative because you know that this is going to be volatile you know, up until certain period. That's why at Kraken, our belief is that for global adoption of crypto and for its real application, which I'll talk about in a second, the emphasis has to be on the underlying education on the substance of crypto, what this technology is actually meant to solve. and Shifting from leaning in with the solution to leaning in with the problem that is meant to solve. When we've all been talking about the power of crypto and what it can do, most of the world is still searching for, explain to me what problem is it really solving in my current existing financial system? We have to stop being tone deaf. We have to really have empathy for the people who aren't getting it. And we have to talk about the basics. And that's where Many brands and definitely at Kraken, you know, we are exp- very focused on driving that education and awareness of both the problems and the use cases and no better time than now where we are actually going through a financial crisis. We are going through what happened in this early on this year with banking. And it just goes back to 2008 and nine. you know, that gave birth to the Bitcoin white paper and led to this revolution.
0: So do you think it's still a a solution in search of the actual problem that it's solving? Or do you see that? And I don't know if you want to pick on Bitcoin or crypto generally, or any of the other sort of coins. Do we have clarity that it's solving a real problem in the world? It definitely is. What is yet to
1: happen is start to solve those at scale, start to remove the friction so that the adoption and the usage becomes more and more easy, even for the folks who aren't as technical. But- as an immigrant who grew up in India, especially in markets and countries like India, South America, Asia, where where the system is much stronger, you know, where the number of people are much higher than the available set of resources, you will value crypto very differently than the way you will value in more developed places like US and UK, for example. Coming from a country like India, I can tell you that the real use case for NFT, as an example, is can you tokenize? your house papers? Can you tokenize your birth certificate? Because these are real issues.
0: Yeah, those are real issues, I agree. The NFT thing, i no question in my mind that that makes sense going forward, yes. And having one single source of ownership that is immutable,
1: unchangeable, that's a massive leap forward. Same way, actually giving full access and control and autonomy on your own funds with full transparency. Removing bias from the system. Who should get a home loan? Right now, who you are determines what rate you get and when you get that home loan. What about all the number of people, which is millions and billions in the world, who have no access to the banks because those banks and traditional financial systems aren't incentivized to bank those people. So it's a fantastic solution and technology that removes the bias that builds that equity and gives equal access to people who will never be served by the traditional systems because they they
0: were built that way. Yeah, got it, I love it. You know, it's so funny you say, it, and you're right, I think that we in America have a little bit of oblivion about what goes on. I remember the early days of eBay. I was on the board of a company in China 20 years ago. And if you were to buy something e-commerce wise in China, you would transact online, you would go to the bank give them the money who would hold the money for the seller somehow, and then transmit it, and then the goods would be sent to you because they just didn't have credit cards. It was the most insane thing I'd ever heard about how the world operated. So you're right. In some regards, I guess the world hasn't, I mean, your thesis in part, Kraken's thesis, then somewhere the world hasn't caught up to this as sort of a revolutionary, universal worldwide solution yet. Yes, it is. And a lot of that is because... We feel these are still early days.
1: There's a lot of work that's yet to be done. There's a lot of friction that is yet to be removed from the technology. And there's a lot of education that is needed too. So we are in no rush, but we are very bullish. We are very committed you know, to the outcome and the thesis and the ethos of crypto. And um, it's inevitable that it's
0: going to keep penetrating the world. We also got to get the scumbags out of the system. Does Kraken have a position on regulation? This, this year in particular with SBF. And I mean, it just seems like every time you turn around, there's some other, you know, scumbag in crypto. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not in
1: a position to talk about it, but what I will say is we are very committed to that part. We know it's inevitable. We have a massive organization within Kraken that is working with the right authorities, you know, that is taking the lead on it. And there's a lot of stuff that, you know, our chief legal officer has publicly shared. And we are, you know, we'll continue to, put more effort in that direction, and we are we are very excited about where things are going.
0: Yeah, we need a little more trust in the system. Well, speaking of trust, let's talk about marketing now. Let's, let's shift gears to the point of this. That was very interesting. You know me, I'm a I'm a huge crypto fan, and I think it's a very interesting development in the world, and I'm, I'm very pro to see where it goes. But, so listen, you know, the underlying thesis of building better CMOs is about not just sort of how great we all are as marketers, but also, what are we doing? Where are the challenges? Where are the problems? What are the things we haven't solved? And in fact, you know, we're talking about the possible event. You referenced that earlier there being there. I mean, I opened the event by pointing out that I believed marketing is not too far away from where the medical profession was in the mid 1800s when they thought <laughs> bloodletting was a good idea. Now, the only problem with bloodletting is where is that theoretically it made sense. You just relieve the pressure of the fluids in my body, I'll be better off. It was killing people. George Washington himself died of bloodletting. So that's a pretty big indictment, I think, for the head of the trade association to make. I recognize that. I'm making a point. But as you look back, and you're perfect, too, because right, you come at it as an engineer. You come at it from the outside originally, although you got inside pretty quickly. You built the underlying infrastructure. What do you think marketers and maybe CMOs might not fully understand that you think they should from your perspective, Mir? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, and, and do you mind if I give you a little bit of a long-winded
1: answer because Go. you're right. You're talking to an early skeptic in marketing. I did my major in computer science and we hated the folks who were doing masters and you know, MBAs. Uh, because we thought they got all the cool jobs and we were the builders. Right?
0: So. <laughs> well, wait, I have a funny side story, though, just for you to know. So I spoke to the MBA class of Oxford University not a yeah. couple of years ago when we were still doing stuff in person. And you know what? I asked them to put up their hands. Who I, I was just, it was a throwaway question. I was just warming with the group. I just went to see where my friendlies were. And I said, hey, who wants to eventually be a CMO? You want to know something, those MBAs? not one of them put their hands up. Mm, not one. Interesting. So none of those none of those well-trained, highly educated individuals yeah. wanted to be a CMO. That's a problem too, but go yeah. ahead, keep going. Yes, yeah. it
1: is. Look, I think my thesis on, well, I call it the thesis because as an engineer, I've, I've had to look at the last 50 years or so. So I'll give you my thesis on where we are in marketing. And I absolutely agree that this craft is actually under a lot of scrutiny. And this is a very important inflection point for this craft of marketing. And it's up to us every single one of us to figure out what the paths in the next 20 30 years look like. I look at marketing in four phases four eras but very quickly era one was when I was growing up and we all were growing up it was all about the era of the madmen you know big scale marketing the channels when there data tech wasn't there yeah. you got a fantastic great creative ad it was witty. People saw it, they loved it, they went to the shelf, they bought it. You know, there yeah. was no,
0: the choice wasn't there, right? There was a lot of day drinking too in the uh, agencies. as well. I, I was there, I saw the very tail end of that, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs>
1: yes, but that was era on, but that laid the perception of marketing for many people. It was a cost center, it was a cool thing, it worked and it largely existed in CPGs, right? Yeah. Then came a little bit fast track from 2000 onwards, 19, late 99 is this concept of digital, this concept of the birth of data in tech, the martech landscape, there's a plethora of technology coming that was now making marketing more addressable, more measurable, more attributable, relatively speaking. And to be honest, it, it became like marketing and then digital marketing up until we all realized, we all were punched in our faces and we realized, well, it's not two types of marketing, it's marketing in a digital world. The world itself had fundamentally changed. Then the third phase was when our lives changed with the launch of iOS, iPhone, And then something that followed right after, which was Facebook really scaling. That shifted marketing for very sole and purpose driven marketing for 40 years to with all the measurement and addressability and now the scale of Facebook and the iPhone to total index on absolute 100% measurable, addressable, lower funnel performance marketing where you blindfolded the audience, put a discount on their pocket, bring them in because nothing else mattered. And it worked. This was when the D2C euphoria came yeah, about. You yeah, know, it was yeah. all about, is marketing became all about CAC, you know, the funnels, optimization, nobody cared about brand. In fact, if you were not working on a CPG, then being a brand marketer became a stigma.
0: Yes, Investing in
1: brand became a stigma. You would be fired if you were a brand driven CMO, if you didn't know performance, if
0: you didn't couldn't drive growth. Yeah, they would talk about brand and maybe some of the importance of it at some level. But it was a, always a brand as a product itself kind of thing. Like, you know, what they had done was enough to establish a brand. It wasn't communicating a position if, in the consumer's mind, yes. which is fundamentally what brands really about. Because it was harder to prove incrementality of that investment, right? Exactly. And, and by the way, that's, that soft skill is I've been around some of the greats, and it's a hard thing to get right. Yes. And we all got used to same de gratification.
1: Then we entered the fourth era, which is where we are in now starting with COVID because one COVID changed that, hey, you couldn't do that anymore because the world totally changed in a way that nobody expected and planned. And we all went back to the basics of marketing, to listen, to be empathetic, where brand mattered. We realized that brands do matter. Long-term sustainable growth can no longer happen in any silo. It can't happen with brand alone, can't happen with performance alone, can't happen with just data, can't happen with just storytelling. So we are literally in this fourth era where we are trying to understand how do we operate the marketing engine, which is an engine of ands and not an engine of ors. And where we have to get better, especially in a world where there are many product-led companies now needing marketing function compared to back in the day when only CPGs did. And I will at some point talk about why do I keep differentiating a CPG- retail kind of marketing function to a direct-to-consumer product-led company which is inherently technology-led in those organizations there are a few things that we as marketers have to get right one is we have to love our product before we love our brand we have this tendency to go in and make it all about the brand but if you don't love your product if you don't get your product if you don't spend more time appreciating and into the Vs of the product, like a product manager, there is no way we are going to build brands that are authentic and honest. The journey begins there. Two, I feel that marketers, as marketers, we have to speak a language that everybody else understands and not a language that only we do, which is the language of data. we have got to own it. If you're a marketer at any level and you don't know your numbers on the water cooler chat, you're losing trust every single day. So you got to know your numbers, whether you like it or not, whether they're good or bad doesn't matter, but you got to know what are the KPIs that you have got to be looking at every single day. Third is this belief that in a world where marketing is one function that has disrupted more than any function in the last 20 years, we have to believe that there are two customers we have. And the internal one is just as important or more important than the external one or as important as the external one, which means that as a CMO, You have to align and set expectation on the definition of success for marketing. What is the scope of marketing? Because a lot of people, especially in those product-led organizations, have their own understanding of marketing, which is a little bit more archaic. They will look at you and they'll say, oh, you are the campaign people, you know, just do some logos, whereas we've got growth and we have to align and set the expectation and we have to build more transparency into what marketing delivers, what marketing is delivering, and what marketing should be held accountable for. That internal relationship building is extremely critical for marketing in a world where our understanding of marketing is so different.
0: Well, and listen, we've got this issue because it came up at last year's MMA CEO Summit, which is you know all the C-suite has marketing as a side hustle. Yes. I mean, the problem with the profession sometimes we're in, and this feels a little whiny, but you know, is that everybody thinks they know it better. They always think they understand how marketing really works because they get so much exposure to it because it's so much a part of our culture. It's a significantly more complicated business than what you can casually watch from the outside. It is, and
1: I often say, just because you write emails doesn't mean you're a copywriter, right? Yeah, exactly. it, it's <laughs> just because you have a WordPress blog doesn't mean you can now build apps. You may, but not everybody who can do use plug and play can now become, a data scientist, I often think, Greg, that the ball is more in our code than anybody else's as marketing, which means that to that point, the way we build credibility about marketing is we have to prove the incrementality. Like there is no other choice. We have to prove what percentage of growth is not going to happen in the absence of marketing. We just have to use creativity and data science together to prove that.
0: I actually had a CMO call me last year and he asked, he said, Greg, is there a standard for quality marketing measurement? And listen, unfortunately at the moment, I was a little like, oh my God, I'm not even sure I know exactly what that is. The answer though is very clear. The answer is incrementality. We have to be able to talk about incrementality and we've got to measure against incrementality. And if not all of your systems are pointed to that, then I think you're right. We're always going to be sort of um, best case where we're less confident and worst case we're killing the business and we don't even know it. Yes. This is interesting though, you mentioned about that, you know, our customer set is both internal, which is I guess that, you know, what you're saying there, correct me if I'm wrong, or go on, is it is that it's aligning the rest of the C suite, the rest of the internal stakeholders, the CEO, the board, CFO in particular, to what are we doing and where are we go and how are we accomplish in it. Then your point is that but we have to talk their language, not ours, not likes and whatever other BS we're kind of making up, or oh my god, even click through, which is horrifying to think that that's become a measure for everything and too many other executives accept that when they shouldn't. Okay. In addition, then we also have to serve external, but you're saying it's an an external means customer consumers, customers that we're we're marketing to. Yeah. And, you you know, now I'm going to just talk a little bit about why this
1: blueprint is different for different types of marketing, you know, not all marketing in every organization is the same, which means that if you're a marketer in a rather CPG organization. And I may I mean, CPG, which is not direct to consumer.
0: Yeah, I understand what CPG. I mean, there, there are other brands. I mean, at some level, at some level, the automotive companies, although they're changing pretty dramatically, used to be kind of CPG like because, you know, tier one would do brand, but they didn't really ever touch the customer in any way. So they were they were doing that abstract kind of thing. Yeah, I get it. One, yes. one step removed, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, totally. It, we're using CPG as a proxy. But the idea of being the
1: business model is different, right? It's one step removed It's not direct to consumer. Correct. I think In that vertical, marketing still is the business driver. It is still the growth driver because there is no other way for the consumers to find you. And that's where you are on a different seat. You command a different respect and authority. Whereas in in an organization which is product-led, where the first phase of growth actually happened in the absence of any marketing. Look at Spotify, look at Google, look at Uber, look at Tesla, no marketing. In the first phase of growth because the product itself had inbuilt flywheels, you
0: know, either through virality or network effects or word of mouth. Or a guy at the very top who was insane about getting sort of public attention for everything he did and was willing to play not by the typical corporate rules, but go to war with people over things.
1: But that is only possible because they also created the category, right? They were category creators. The product itself had so much value in it that it just kept going viral. But the core being the product itself drove the first phase of growth. In those type of product-led organizations where marketing was never needed up until you got to a billion dollar in revenue or XYZ, when now you parachute yourself as a marketer because the growth has stalled, where the competition has caught up, and now you have to create new demand with marketing, the challenge is very, very different because in those organizations, a lot of the muscle was built without this new muscle. You're a new organ in the body and you
0: have to prove yourself every single day. By the way, just a very funny aside, because I've actually had a chance to talk to Elon about this. test, Tesla have to advertise at some point? Actually,
1: I was about to post that. I saw an article on The Verge where uh, I think Elon Musk said that they are going to start advertising on Twitter. And I think there are two things. One, of course, there's a very common connection, very easy connection now between one of the largest advertising platform and one of the... Perhaps one of the most loved brands recently, at least in automobile. And the second is the growth is not the same that was happening. Look at the clutter in
0: the EV category now. Right. Well, part of the issue, too, that he pointed out, which I thought was really interesting, is that, you know, listen, he had manufacturing constraints. So he didn't have unlimited ability to produce, not flood the market. That's a little too strong, probably, but he didn't have the ability to really flood the market and then have to, he didn't have to create demand. He was able just to produce enough to catch up. As he produces more, as he puts more into factories and everything else, there's a point in time where, yeah, he's going to have to compete like everybody else. And I think the game's going to change. And he even acknowledges that. He realizes it's going to shift at some point as much as he's been an advocate and a little bit arrogantly for like, I don't have to. It's typical Silicon Valley. Like, I don't have to market. It's like, well, that's a luxury that not all of us have. Yes. And look, that
1: happened even with the euphoria of all the direct-to-consumer businesses. The first phase needed one type of marketing, largely bottom funnel. If you're product-led, you leverage the product, which I don't think anything's wrong with that. As long as you understand that at some point you saturate the demand that exists in the category, and then you need the flywheel of great brand storytelling to create new demand, as well as the engine to capture that demand effectively.
0: I've often had a thesis too that some of this, depending on your category and who you are, there's a little bit of insurance that goes on because if the consumer doesn't really understand who you are and slot you appropriately into their life, that you continue to have high value, which is somewhat based on perception, there can come a point in time you can get totally hosed. And I'll use a very specific example. I was at AOL in 1997. And I remember the arrogance in which they had to the table that they didn't have to market. And I'm like, there's gonna come a point in time where you're gonna get hosed, and it happened about a year later when they switched. It was unlimited usage as they went to. And listen, I don't think AOL, ever, except for taking over Time Inc., <laughs> I don't know that it ever really recovered from that kind of experience because everybody's like, ah, done. There was enough important. It, it had value to me and how I used it, but it wasn't seated in my mind as yes. something I had to have. Yeah. And they got totally hosed. And I've seen other brands who who have gotten in the backside of negative news. And if they don't have a well-entrenched brand that's understood and consumers appreciate and respect, you can have real troubles on your hands. Yes, that's, that's a great point because I've always believed that, you know,
1: oftentimes when you talk about retention and churn or bringing user back or, or bring, building that love, we often focus only on experience and the core product. We undermine the value of expectation. Churn happens when the expectation and experiences are mismatched. So you can have an average product and average experience, as long as you set the expectation upfront, you may change your core audience, but as long as the expectation experience is matching, which means your promise and product is closer, you have a higher likelihood
0: of retaining and continue to drive lifetime value. Hey, Mir, let's go back to something you talked about earlier though. I wanna go back to this sort of brand versus performance. We've not really known as marketers how to invest in long-term in addition to short-term and the dynamics of that. And why that question's so interesting to me is two things. One, it is the underlying thesis of the entire marketing advertising business—that relationship to brand, okay—and how to invest in that. I probably talk to at least a hundred CMOs a year. You know, not just the member CMOs like yourself, but beyond that, right? At least hundred a year. I've never had one when I've told them we're working on, when the MMA's working on a brand as performance project, not for brand versus, but brand as performance. They've all said, that's a question we have here. That's a big topic here. And what's funny about that is that we've all, if everybody says it's a big topic, then why the hell was anybody working against it? Like I've never heard anybody come up with a solution for what, except for what the MMA is doing against it. What do you think is going on there? Is it just a, suddenly a new, we didn't get it? I don't know. We never tried. I don't, it feels like a big failing. I know a lot of brands and businesses
1: and myself, you know, when I was at Spotify working with Seth Fob, and we were trying to solve this in 2016, this was a big, big, massive question. In fact, I was hired to run marketing sciences to prove just that.
0: Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's
1: so interesting. We did MMAs, we did match market tests, we did okay, MTAs yep. back in 2016, late 2016. Yep. And the whole thesis was Spotify had such a fantastic organic funnel, but we were investing heavily in marketing. After the first two years, everybody very naturally started asking questions Do we need marketing?
0: Is it really working or is it all organic? Yeah. How much of this is incremental? Again, another example amazing product, incredibly strong. My kids loved it, loved it. Talked about Spotify all the time. I, older generation, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't get it exactly. I get it now. Totally got it. I'm on board. But yeah, amazing brand. Okay. So, yeah. So, you guys talked internally said, Do we need it? Yes. Okay. And, and Go ahead. A lot of the work that we
1: did was always about measuring the incrementality and the correlation between brand and performance. So as we improve the brand KPIs, they influence the performance KPIs. Could we correlate brand lift to somehow revenue lift because if you improve the brand the brand KPIs, you realize that the funnel was shortening. You realize that you were creating new demand in categories that weren't coming in, in segments that were not coming to you, that you were now expanding that TAM and capturing that. And two, What we often don't talk about is a correlation of a strong brand with retention, because in a world that we live in today, your brand and your business is gonna screw up at some point or the other. It is inevitable. Yep, that's what I said earlier, yep. When you have a cultural and an emotional connection beyond just a utility and a functionality, your client, your customer base is far more forgiving because they are deeply connected with you. The moat of emotion and culture is far stronger than the moat of any functionality they'll give you another chance. And that's why we have to measure that in terms of lifetime value and retention. Now, the challenge, Greg, to your point is, it is harder to measure. It's not a clickstream stream data that you can totally correlate, but this is why I know MMA is doing great work in terms of MTA, MMM, match market tests. And the one thing I have learned is, again, based on the nature of the organization, you as a CMO may not have six months to prove something. Even six months is a long time frame, right? Yep. In organizations that are used to same-day gratification, who's which CFO and CEO is going to give you six months to go spend and tell me later whether it worked or not, which means that we have to get creative with proxy KPIs. We have to show signals you know, and identify, yeah. hey, I'm spending in brand right now. I'm going to bring this deeper dive study six months later because I need enough longevity in my flight period. But- we are getting these early signals. I'm gonna use correlations. This is why getting creative with data, getting creative with storytelling and changing old habits, which means nobody cares about the launch of your campaign. Don't talk about it, but talk about what happens in week two of your campaign. You know What was the outcome you were going towards? What was the user behavior? So it's also changing the internal taxonomy on what we share and how we share it as marketers, which again, gives you one extra week and one extra week.
0: Yeah, it's funny you say that, you know, maybe with the reason we did measure, we didn't try to measure brand long-term because we didn't really think we'd be in the job that long, or it's maybe as much as the companies never really supported us in trying to figure that out. I mean, it was hard. I'll tell you what happened on that too, is that I went to the board and says, I think we can, I said, this is a math problem to understand that the demonstrate brand and short-term performance marketing. Like it's not. It's not cold fusion. It's not. It's not something we have to go discover. You know, we're not going to Mars here. We. It's a math problem. And so, it, but it's how you collect the data. So, you know, thanks to a guy named Alan Tegerson, who was the head of sales at Google, president of sales at Google, he said, "Listen, we'll, we'll help fund this effort for the good of marketers and the good of marketing. Like, don't make it about Google." But he says, "We don't think you can actually solve the problem you're trying to solve." So, even at that time, you know, three years ago, Google didn't think. And as you know, we just got data now seven, eight weeks ago that said, okay, we think the methodology is sound. We think that we've collected the right data and we have the right analysis now. We need to do more investigations to validate that. But we think for the first time ever, we can explain brand to a CFO in her or his language. Absolutely.
1: And there is something else that was happening in parallel, Greg, which is why this time is so critical to solve for what you are pushing for, which is, since 2008 and 9, when it all became about growth, growth at all costs and cap, it took us 10 years to finally saturate that part of the funnel, which was the lower half of the funnel with the same kind of the underlying performance ecosystem of the Metas and the Googles and so on. We saturated it with the influx of whole new brands the direct-to-consumer businesses where the CPMs were untenable now, you know, where it is no longer possible to make the unit economics work for you to keep acquiring users and constantly growing CACs, which means that finally, that whole inertia took us 10 years to realize that, look, we had the flywheel to capture demand, but we forgot to turn on the flywheel to create new demand, which means once you Uh. saturated it, where are you going to go? The CACs go up, competition is higher, so your retention is very low. And you're losing money. That is what happened with most because you were not your flywheel to create the next plethora of demand didn't wasn't on. That's why right. now CEOs are a lot more open to investing in brand
0: because they are seeing the growth stall, in fact, go downwards. So right. So your point is is that CPM's major impressions, let's assume there's a relationship between impressions and actual uh, business performance yes. or delivery. Okay. So let's just hold that for a moment. Just. But you're right. As the As the CPMs went up, as the cost of media went up, as demand became greater for Facebook and others, those costs rose, those businesses no longer made sense and they couldn't deliver against that. They needed a new game plan. Yeah. I think a lot of people underestimate that. This is the funny thing about marketing is that we're not very good at understanding where we are. And by the way, it's going to change. And we're really ill-prepared for that change. And this is why I said in the beginning,
1: this is a very interesting inflection point for the craft of marketing. If we don't prove that your concept of brand is performance and performance is brand is both ways, right? If we don't prove that very quickly, I think a lot of the work that marketing used to do will embed itself into other functions like product
0: itself, you know, and so on. You know, my favorite story is that a good friend of mine was over at uh, one of the banks. He had $100 million in marketing at one of the banks. He had $100 million pulled out of his budget because the people who ran operations or the branch operations had figured out the incrementality of new carpet in the stores, in the branches. So when they put a new carpet, sales revenue went up in some regards and he couldn't validate marketing the same way. Yeah. So the story was, always, he got beat by the carpet carpetbaggers. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, like, that's a sad story yeah. when marketing gets beat by new carpet, We're just it's like, oh my God, we have so much work to do. That's a mountain we have to climb, and we have to climb it every day. That's a mountain to climb. It's hard to kind of work your th- way through and navigate through companies to end up in the top spot. And then it's hard to hold that top spot and sort of show up every day and do what you need to. So maybe talk a little bit about your own journey and getting there and maybe some of the awarenesses that you had that maybe you didn't see common, or didn't understand or didn't know that it looked different when you were on the outside, I guess. Yeah. That's a great question, Greg.
1: And I'm a Buddhist. I started practicing Buddhism in 2006. My wife introduced me to this incredible philosophy and that life philosophy has really helped me introspect a lot and have a lot of appreciation and gratitude. So I'm gonna share two or three principles and lessons that I've learned through the failures I've had. But well, first is, you know, when you grow up in a country like India, where we are so many of us and the resources are much lesser, you are trained to come first. You know, when you're in a race, and you come second or third, you probably don't have a chance because there's only one spot. There's only one spot there. So your frame of mind, at least back then, a lot has changed now. In general, any country in the world that has less resources and the number of people who need them, your frame of mind, your nurturing is all about coming first, right? Which means you're running, trying to run faster than anybody else because only one person's got a shot. And I came to the US with that mindset. My career began with that mindset because I was trained like that. And It took me perhaps much longer to realize that as a leader, it was no longer about being the first one to cross the line. There's a pivotal point in my journey where I realized that that wasn't success anymore. Success was more about how many people I could take along. Success was no longer about being the guy with the answer. Success was more about having the ability to ask the right questions in the room. Right? That came the hard way Learned the lesson the hard way, but I learned that lesson. And I think that is, that is very, very important for anyone trying to go through their career and their own journey, that the only race you run is with your own self, with you from yesterday. But I learned that very late in my life. Second is, this is the part of the Buddhist philosophy that has taught me, which is the shit will inevitably hit the fan, no matter where you were right? It is, it is inevitable. You can try your level best. You can turn off the fan, the shit will still hit it and it'll still start running and it'll fall all over. The most important thing is what do you do when that does happen? Do you point fingers or do you stand up and say, I'm going to take accountability and responsibility for it? You first ask, what could I have done differently? And that mindset shift for me has been extremely critical. and. I had been fired before, but when that happened, I left that job with a lot of pride because I knew that I stood by my values and I have you know no regrets looking back. And my leader, the person I worked with, I invested in their following startup because no hard feelings. We just realized that you know our values weren't aligned. But I challenged myself not to lose confidence because I knew that wherever I will land after that will be far bigger and far better for me than where I was, which gave me the confidence eventually that all of us may get rejected by a thousand places. It's not because of you. It is because you just haven't found the right combination. And it may not happen in your first gig, may not happen in your second gig, but eventually it will happen. And that's the magical combination. It's where you as your own self in your absolute brutal honesty, an authentic self is needed at an organization so that the mission and the purpose of that company becomes a platform for you to fulfill your own mission. And I honestly, I felt that we at Spotify and I feel that we are at Kraken, where the mission and the values are Kraken strongly align with how I think and what I wanna do in the world and is giving me a
0: platform to voice it and execute it. Wow, that's so very powerful. And I love your point about at the end of the day, assume ultimate responsibility, or I think a variation that, if I can't say it, just correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but that there's always a part that I play in every situation. And at the end of the day, the only thing I can change is not them, not their views, not their actions, not their attitudes, not their dislike of me, whatever it is. I can only change me. Yes.
1: And without getting too philosophical, in Buddhism, we call it the oneness of you and the universe, where everything around us is a reflection of our inner self. And what do you do when you want to change what you see in the mirror? You don't change the mirror. You change what's standing in front of it.
0: Yeah, I love that. You know, it's funny you say this. I I will say, I I don't know if I've ever really disclosed this to too many people. Sure, My wife has probably heard me say it. Maybe that's it. One of the people that most changed my life was a guy named Jack Kornfeld. If you know who he is, and he wrote a book of uh, 30 plus years ago called A Path with a Heart. Sure. And it changed everything for me. I reset the whole world around me. If you know who he is, he's both an Eastern philosophy Buddhist monk, and he's got a PhD in, psych- in Western psychology. Yep. And it was a combination of those two that I found incredibly valuable. And he actually he uses a word a lot, which has become now my very favorite word in the whole world, which is equanimity. Mm-hmm. I love that word. Because that's what it is. It's finding a sense of peace in a world that may otherwise be chaotic or whatever, but it's all but it's all it's all here inside. Yep. It's not has nothing to do with the outside world. It's all that's all just yeah. that's yeah. all done. Very powerful. And beautiful. Thanks for sharing yeah wow
1: this is a podcast for secrets Greg. so bring out bring more <laughs> tell us more
0: secrets that your wife doesn't know about so your point if i can kind of capture that a little bit Amir, is that uh you really just it, you, it's just your a focus on sort of your own self and what you're trying to do and bring to the table that is both how you deal with the complexities of the role itself I'm assuming you're saying too, in part, that there's something that has attribute that, that attributes also to the success that you've had in doing that, right?
1: Yes. Yes. What I mean is how do you keep evolving and learning and not try to be the person with all the answers, but building the muscle to be able to, to be vulnerable, to work with your team, to say, look, I don't know, I need help, you know, to build the muscle to have the ability to ask the right questions versus always getting the right answer. And there's one more thing, Greg, that I, uh, I learned, in, especially in the last eight to nine years, which is one of the things that you have to do as a leader is build this acumen to hire leaders who are way smarter and stronger than you are. You know, it's having that self-assurance in who you are that gives you the confidence to bring someone stronger. Because guess what? The funny part is you get paid to learn for free every single day. So (laughs) I have surrounded myself with with one of the most incredible teams I've ever had. It's taken us very long, but I feel very proud of the leaders I have in the organization and everybody else at Kraken because you get to learn so much. So how you surround yourself with confidence and build a great team so that someday you you have more than one successor, that's a recipe for success.
0: Yeah, it's very funny you say that. I think the thing I like about the role that I play in sitting within a trade association, and by the way, when I got asked to run my the first one that I turned around, it was the IAB many years ago, I told the board, I, I go, I'll stick around three, six months. I'll just get the thing organized. I was stepping in for a CEO that was let go. I said, I'll, I'll stick around for three, six months, but I don't want to run a trade association. I remember I go, that would be the dumbest effing thing I could do, is exactly what I said to the chairman at the time. And what a misunderstanding. Now I've done two of them. What I didn't see coming is that just the opportunity to work with other really smart people that I get to learn from. You know, you're in that list. It's like, what's better than that? Yeah. And you know, one funny thing you mentioned earlier, Greg, I've used this
1: analogy for slightly different context. You you compared marketing to medical. The way I think about that same analogy I've used in the past as well is because when I look at a lot of doctors in my family. They're constantly studying. They're constantly evolving themselves because oh,
0: of course they right. Yes. Because, why yes,
1: because the viruses in the world keep popping up. Right,
0: exactly. So you have to level up every single time. And the art and the craft and the science of it changes, changes and evolves. Yes. And yes, and we in marketing never respect yes. that. We get dogged and we, we stick, stick where we are and we don't go. The world shifts. Yes. what are we going to do? That is
1: why this is the last principle I'm going to share, which is this is the profession that needs to constantly evolve because it's going to constantly change, which means that the traditional DNA of a marketer is no longer successful. As a marketer, you have to be an analyst. You have to understand finance. You have to understand technology and you have to be knee deep in product. So you need to go deep in some areas. Yes, you go deep in your own sub area of marketing, but you need to have a lot more breadth because without that, you're not going to be successful because The experiences that we deliver today aren't happening in any of these individual silos, right? The end customer doesn't see marketing versus product versus finance. They see the experience and we need to understand how to connect those dots. So one way that I've challenged myself is I have tried to take on roles that have challenged me in my weakest areas. And crypto and fintech, funny enough, was that one muscle that I never organically had. So I got into crypto in 2017. And when Kraken and I and Jesse and I started talking, this was just fascinating because I knew it was going to challenge me in ways that I've never been challenged
0: before. Yeah, I love that. I love stepping up. Yeah, I had a friend of mine say too, he goes, never take a job unless it makes you shake in your boots a little bit. So that sense of uncomfortability is the greatest place to start. I have a question for you here. What do you really think the fifth air of marketing is going to look like? Like, what's the next inflection point for us? What do you think we got to get better or good at? Or? Where we got to get better and good
1: at is we've got to find this convergence of empathy and honesty along with an ability to move the business forward, right? I think the fact that we have shied away from connecting purpose with profitability, brilliant creative And storytelling with science or like you said an authentic brand a soulful brand with absolute hardcore exponential growth i feel the future of marketing is finding that intersection on top of leveraging all the evolution in technology leveraging ai leveraging all the underlying strength and capabilities in the platform and the statelessness of Web3, which are all, to me, these are all things that are inevitable. It may seem unreal right now, but these are all things inevitable. And while marketing will evolve, the important thing will be that we don't lose the foundation, which is still that empathy and compassion and the soul while moving the needle for the business.
0: Wow. There you go, everybody. I think that ends up in the liner notes for everybody to share beyond. So <laughs> there you go. Okay. Listen, let's do a couple of sort of wrap up questions. Whose work or what other companies work do you kind of really admire? Like who's who's kind of caught your attention either of late or, or, or sometime in the past? There's no there's no time limit to that. Yeah, there are a couple of examples that come out.
1: One I'll be amiss if I didn't mention Spotify and the rap and you're in music. I was I was right there witnessing it. I think it's a It's a brilliant example of the magic you create because when you combine the power of product, both from an operating standpoint, because we really worked closely with product, data science, and just brilliant creative and storytelling. Like that was uh, not just in terms of what a single function did, but what we all did together as a cross functional unit. Like that was the outcome of all of that and still running and still humming, and it's created a whole wave that many, many brands around the world adopt during that time of the year, right? And then one more recently, w- which excited me was the work that Burger King did, you know, around two years back. And the reason why it excited me was it used creative storytelling in a very commoditized category to bring a lot of dialogue and conversation and move the needle.
0: what they do, which one, what are you referring to?
1: Is the whopper, I think it was the, it was called the molded whopper.
0: You know, it, it took a lot of courage Oh, my God, huge courage. I, I I often look at that and I go, what I've had the sense of leadership to pull that off in a company, Ugh, I don't know. It shows a moldy whopper as a way to announce that the fast food chain will no longer put
1: preservatives in their food. The beauty of no artificial preservatives.
0: Yes. I think it's yeah. great. It's very risky, but I think it's a really neat commercial.
1: It's fascinating and gross at the same yes. time. When I watch this, I'm like, I can't unsee this, but also <laughs> I can't stop watching it. That to me was very, very interesting, very bold, but what I love was it connected creativity and storytelling with business and kpis right again, it wasn't just for the sake of getting awards, but it was truly something that was intended to move the needle well what's
0: interesting is Fernando, who did you know a lot of that work yeah. uh, did an excellent job, an excellent job of connecting his creative work to the sales of that business in a really in a uniquely powerful way. Yes. Suddenly awards awards had monetization to them, I yes. guess, at some level, rather than just for ego. Yes. And yeah. I think we need more and more
1: of those examples that we can all keep leaning on to to elevate that great and honest and creative marketing does work. And there's one small one great. I have to, I'm such a bad marketer. That's why I have to plug in for my own team right now. There is this Fantastic work we did two weeks back with one of the YouTube influencers called Kidboga. So this is my brand and the brand partnership team. The reason why I'm very proud of it is this is not about a massive media buy or anything. This is like a real use case, a real problem case solved with brilliant partnership and creativity. So we had Kidboga. So he basically does these Twitch videos to catch scammers who are trying to catch oh. your Bitcoin. You should totally check it out. You will dig it I because will. you are a Bitcoin maximalist yourself. <laughs> and you will see how nick who's a chief security officer and kit they did this thing with this guy live and what is unfortunate is this guy actually the ip was from india but we caught him and it just went viral it was fantastic it was oh, great wait. authentic uh, ideation from our from my brand team and i'm very proud of it
0: i've been working with kraken offline for probably six months now And their engineering and fraud team put together this custom environment for me to fight back against scammers and during one of our meetings they suggested the perfect plan i tell joe that in order for me to send this money to him he has to have a verified account now there's different levels of verification but if he wants this much money quickly he'd have to turn over some of his personal information say a passport. And since I'm partnered with Kraken and the fraud team would be watching in real time, if he signed up and put all that information on there, they'd have it. I have some of that kind of stuff come up in my feeds. I love those sort of catching the bad guys. Okay. What's most overhyped in marketing today? What do you think is overhyped?
1: Getting excited about the launch of a campaign.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. We're missing the point when we talk about the launch of the campaign. Okay. I'll take that. Good. I like that thesis. And what's most under under underappreciated in marketing? I mean, I don't I, this whole part, everything we just talked yes. about. <laughs> if, if I, I were to pick one, I would say the power
1: of great content and creative has been overshadowed by the reach of media in the last 15 years, right? It's very easy to spend billions of dollars in media. And it's unfortunate when CMOs are judged based on the size of the money they've spent. It's very easy to spend money. It's very hard to drive organic growth and move the
0: needle and prove incrementality. So if you could give the final single comment for anybody listening to this, who wants to be a better CMO, you wanna summarize?
1: Don't be too hard on yourself. The, the, The role of marketing in the world today is hard. And if you're struggling, I bet you, you're not the only one. So first start every day like that, that you are one of million of us, and we're all struggling, we're all trying to answer the same question, and we're all fighting to keep that place on the table every single day. What is most important is, enjoy the battle. So that's one. And tactically speaking, I'll just share the five principles that I remind myself every day. Love your product before you love your brand. Speak the language that everybody else gets, which is the language of data. So know your numbers, know your data, focus and obsess with outcomes and not outputs. Don't worry about the proxies, the campaign launches, but the outcomes, which is what moves the business and what is relevant to your category. And fourth is you have two customers, the internal one is just as important as the external. Don't ignore it. Build the relationships, build trust, build transparency. And then last is connect the dots. Don't stand on the island of purpose if you can't connect it with profitability. Don't stand on the island of brand if you can't connect it with, with performance and growth. You know, Or don't stand on creativity if you don't apply science and storytelling.
0: There you have it, everybody. Words to live by. Mir, I can't. I can't thank you enough. I mean, really, just what a phenomenal conversation. Again, it's really like I. It's really the reason I love my job. I get to work with smart people trying to figure out the world, and you're one of those at the top of the list. So, thank you very much. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. This was great. Thanks again to Mayer Gupta from Kraken for coming on Building Better CMOs. Check the show notes for links to connect with Mayer. And if you want to know more about MMA's work to unlock the power of marketing, please visit mmaglobal.com. Or you can attend any one of our 30 conferences in 15 countries where MMA operates. Or write to me, greg, at mmaglobal.com. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new to the show, please follow or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find links to all those places and more at bettercmos.com. Our producer and podcast consultant is Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Building Better CMO's researcher is Anita Paluska. Artwork is by Jason Chase, and a very special thanks to Lucera Smith. This is Greg Stewart. I'll see you in two weeks.